good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg Baker. I uh, have the privilege of serving as one of the deacons here at Grace, and I also get to teach our fifth and sixth graders every Wednesday night in a ministry that we call The Bridge. Um, just started the program last year, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun so far. We have played dodgeball, we have played capture the flag all across the sanctuary, um, and I have really got to know these kids, and they've got to know me, but one of the important things to me when I first started was that I get to take them to camp. Um, I loved going to camp when I was young, and I knew it was just the thing that we were going to need for them to be comfortable with me, for me to be comfortable with them. And so, last summer, we hopped in the vans and we drove a couple hours north to just outside Livingston, and we went to Student Life for Kids Camp. Um, Like I said, I grew up going to one or two church camps every summer from the time I was in fourth or fifth grade all the way up through high school. So I kind of knew what I was getting into. Um, But this camp, Student Life Camp, was different. It was far and away better than the other experiences I had. Not just because they gave us the great opportunities to spend time with our students, to spend time with our kids, but also because they did such a good job of tying everything that we did back to the gospel. Every skit, every wreck thing, every time they poured slime on my head, it had a message. It had a connection back to who we are, who God is, how he has saved us, and what that means for our lives. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is I want to take at the script, or look at the scriptures that we're going to cover at camp this year. Um, I want to talk through them. I want to go through each day just to kind of highlight the importance of camp, to highlight the importance of what it means to me, what it means to the bridge, what it means to our church. Um, and so, if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, um, I'll pray for us, and then we will get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here as a faith family. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here as a fellowship of believers to worship you, to hear your word preached and sung and read. I thank you for student life, the wonderful work that they've done in preparing these lessons and preparing to teach the gospel to literally thousands of kids this summer. I ask that you would give me the words to speak and all the people in this room ears to hear and hearts to receive your message this morning. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's Let's dive right into our scripture, uh, and I'll be reading from the CSB. Again, this is verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one 
who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The title of this morning's sermon is Transformation Saved from Brokenness to Mission. And that that follows right after our theme for camp, which will be transformation. And as we move through camp each day, we will look at three aspects, three primary points, if you will, of biblical transformation. And we're going to unpack those points from this scripture in 2 Corinthians and then expand upon it based on a few narrative passages from the Gospels and from the book of Acts to really bring these principles to life, to highlight what it means to be transformed. And that first piece of transformation, the one that we need to understand right off the bat in the very beginning, is that we need to be transformed. We are broken. We see this right away in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. To be in Christ, to be one of his flock, requires change. It requires transformation. Looking a little closer, this old and this new, taking away those old things, those old things passing away, is the transformation of our sinfulness, of our brokenness. And we know this, right? Paul makes it clear throughout all of his letters to the various um, congregations of the early church. We think about Ephesians 2, where it says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We think about Romans 2, where it says that we are storing up wrath for ourselves because of our hard and unrepentant hearts. Again, Romans 5, when he said that death has spread to all the world because all has sinned. Paul highlights it again in our passage when he describes the work of Jesus. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we don't need to look up the word reconciliation, but I'm pretty sure we would all understand that for two parties to be reconciled, to be brought together, it means they had to be separate. It means they had to be estranged first. And so, as we look at this at the first day of camp... We're going to spend time right here in Corinthians 2, but then we're going to expand upon it uh, from the book of Luke. Again, chapter 5, and you guessed it, starting in verse 17. Um, And I will read that. It says, On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was with Jesus. Just then, some men came, carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before Jesus. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, Take your stretcher 
and go home. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. You know, I I really love this passage, and one of the reasons that I think it's perfect for this is because, um, and this is common throughout a lot of the Gospels, but we have two uh, separate but kind of tied examples of our need for transformation. The first, blatant, obvious, we have a paralyzed man. He can't walk. He can't even get to Jesus to ask for help without help. And just as we expect from other stories of healing, other stories in the gospel, Jesus heals this man, not out of pity or obligation, but because of his faith, right? We can see our need for transformation in this paralyzed man. But then we have the little bit more subtle example. I mean, it comes from this kind of comparison that Luke sets up between the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the onlookers who believe in Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees see, see this miraculous work. They see Jesus heal a man, say his sins are forgiven, and they don't rejoice. They're skeptical. They see, just, they see Jesus' gracious and loving act as blasphemy, as heresy. They see it as a threat to their way of life and to their control over the Israelite people. Contrast that with the response from the others in the crowd. It says, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone, the crowd, these people that we're contrasting with, they were astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe, saying we've seen incredible things today. The scribes and Pharisees couldn't see that. They couldn't see the glory of God in this, in this act, in this trans, or in this healing work because their hearts had not been transformed. Their hearts weren't just a little bit bad. They weren't just kind of okay sometimes. We see here, these are enemies of God. These are people who cannot even see God's glory in this most gracious and merciful act. They were just as far from seeing God's glory, just as far from experiencing his love and mercy as that lame man was from getting up and walking home. Our hearts are like theirs. Our hearts are enemies of God. We cannot fix ourselves. But just like Jesus did make that lame man to walk, Jesus can transform our hearts. He can bring our spirits to life. He can give us quickening grace. To use the language from 2 Corinthians... He can reconcile us to God because of his work on the cross. He can bring us into the fold so that we can see the Father's glory. And that kind of brings us right into our our second big idea, and that's the idea that we'll explore on Tuesday at camp. And it is that Jesus is the only source of transformation. He is our only chance to be saved And when we receive his transformation, when he changes us, we move from sinful to forgiven. He doesn't just help us. He doesn't just nudge us in the right direction. He makes us completely new. 
Again, we go right back to verse 17 in our passage from 2 Corinthians. It says he makes us a new creation. I don't know about you, but that wording kind of draws me back to Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 3 when he says that we need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Paul is teaching us the same thing here that Jesus was saying there. And it is that Jesus transforms us Jesus takes our identity from that of broken sinner to a forgiven, beloved heir in the kingdom of God. And on Tuesday, during our life group session at camp, which is our kind of concentrated time together as a church, just our leaders, just our kids, we get to dig into this and we're going to unpack this idea through John chapter 11. Um, Again, this is a familiar passage, one that we all know probably, um, and it's about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Um, And this one is a a, a pretty long passage, and I don't want to keep you all the way through lunch, just part of the way through lunch. Um, So I'm going to skip through it a little bit, but but y'all can stick with me. Um, So again, this is John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. And then I'll pick up in verse 13. Jesus, however, was speaking about Lazarus' death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. Then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. And when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even now I believe that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And then picking up in verse 40 and going through the end of the passage, Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, 
I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound, hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Now, I don't, I don't think I really have to highlight too greatly that this passage, passage even further says that our only chance for salvation, for transformation, is in Jesus. I don't think anybody would have expected Lazarus to just walk out of that tomb by himself. Look at verse 25, where Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just say that he brings resurrection. He doesn't just say that he gives life. He says that he is resurrection and life. And he is teaching us that our forgiveness, our status with God is so dependent on, so tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that it is not enough to see him as the deliverer of salvation. We have to get our minds around the idea that he is the source, the provider, the very substance of the newly created life that we have in him. And when we do that, it, it, it changes our outlook on everything. It changes everything. Look again at verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. And everyone who believes in me, or lives and believes in me, will never die. In this statement, I mean, Jesus is acknowledging very clearly, Lazarus is dead. He's died. But if we think about it, he's kind of saying, it doesn't really matter. It says that the one who believes in me, even if he dies, that's Lazarus, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, that's Martha, that's us will surely never die. Jesus is teaching Martha and he is teaching us that what really matters in the final analysis, what changes us from enemies of God to heirs in his kingdom, what cements our place as the children of God is that God or is that Jesus transforms us, that he loves us, that we believe in him and that we are one of his own. This passage is also very clear that our transformation from enemies to heirs is not, is not just for us. It is for the glory of God that others may believe. And Jesus tells his disciples plainly in verse 4 that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but that it has a greater purpose for his glory. He's intentional in the way that he waits to go to Bethany for two extra days. And when he isn't there on time, he says, I did it on purpose. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't here. Because seeing this miracle, seeing me raise Lazarus from the dead, is going to strengthen your belief. It is going to make you believe. It is going to bring you closer to me. He reminds Martha of this in verse 40 when he says that she will see the glory in Lazarus' resurrection if she believes in him. Jesus is proclaiming that the Father's glory is going to be shown. It is going to be on display. I am going to raise this man, and, and that will be miraculous regardless of whether you see it or not. But unless you have been transformed, unless you have put your trust in me, you will not see my Father's glory. You will not know it. 
Just like in our last story, God's glory was shown in the healing of the paralyzed man. It was there, but, but the Pharisees couldn't see it because they hadn't believed, because they hadn't been transformed. And what does that result in? Where does it go? Where does God's glory be shown take us? It says plainly in verse 46, that after Jesus had proclaimed the power of the Lord in raising Lazarus, many Jews believe in him. Well, now that we've kind of established um, that we are without a doubt in need of transformation, that Jesus is our only source of transformation, I want us as a, a faith family to think about um, the fact that those who are transformed live lives that cause others to be transformed. And that's our third point. Those who have been transformed live lives that cause others to be transformed. When Jesus reconciles us to God, when he, or when he displays his glory in our transformation, he doesn't stop there. He also puts us on mission. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians, where Paul says that he said that we are now ambassadors for Christ. He says that we have been given the, mechan- the, rec- the mission of reconciliation, that we have been made ambassadors for Christ so that God may appeal to the world through us. It's the same message that Paul relayed later in Ephesians 2 when he said that God created his people in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. God is making it clear in these writings and in these passages that he doesn't just have a plan for our salvation. He has a plan to use us in the salvation of others. Now, the folks at Student Life definitely didn't have to search too hard for a narrative passage that highlights this aspect of transformation because we just kind of have the entire book of Acts, um, which is one big play-by-play of this happening as the early church grew and developed. Um, But they decided to go right into the middle of Paul's ministry um, in Acts 16, where he and Silas have been thrown into the prison in Philippi. And so I'll pick up that story uh, in verse 25. Again, Acts 16 and verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Right off the bat, we see Paul and Silas act in a weird, unexpected manner, and other people are noticing. I'm going to venture to guess that if we were in that jail that night, or if we went to a prison around here, we would not see a lot of singing. We would not hear a lot of worship. But what allowed them to do that is that Paul and Silas are holding fast to the very same truths that Jesus just explained to Martha in the book of John. And Jesus, they know that he loves them. And that changes everything for them. It allows them to have comfort and purpose in a dire situation such as this. Picking up in verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul said in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of people ask me that plainly about salvation, or at least about avoiding judgment, uh, like this man was. And, And I don't know if Paul and Silas really expected that reaction either, but what we do know, what we can be sure of, is that they didn't leave the jail on purpose so that they would have an opportunity to share the gospel. They had been singing, they had been praising God, they had been worshiping, they had been looking for this chance, and here it was. And by the way, back to the whole not leaving jail thing, that's just something an ordinary person would not do. 100 times out of 100, someone who has not been transformed, someone who has not been ministered to and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, hightails it out of that jail the second they get the chance. But these men were different. They were ambassadors for Christ. They were looking for ways to carry the message of reconciliation forward. And I'll pick up in verse 31 and go through the end of the passage. It said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family were baptized. He brought them into the house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced, because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Just like the people who watched Jesus heal the paralyzed man, just like the people who saw Lazarus walk out of that grave, Paul and Silas experience a miracle. They see the the work of God. They feel the earthquake. They have their shackles break loose from their hands and their feet, and they recognize it as God's work. And when they do, they're ready. They are ready to simply but profoundly declare that God made His Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, for the Philippian jailer, for you. And then He nailed Him to a cross. And three days later, He raised Him from the dead that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you are sitting in this room today and you have been brought into the fold of Christ, then you need to be ready. Jesus did not live this righteous life and then give it up on the cross for you to remain stagnant and silent. He took your curse and he took your shame to glorify his Father and to put you on mission. We have to start living lives I have to start living a life that makes people wonder what's different, what has changed, a life that brings people to the foot of the cross and says you need to be transformed and you can be transformed because of what Christ did right here. Three simple points. By nature, we are broken. We are crippled, we're paralyzed, we're dead. 
And our relationship with God has been ripped apart by the defiling of his character, by our sin. But God's plan, his story, his mission, his dealing with us did not stop at the fall. It continues to this day in the redemptive and the transformative work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as if that wasn't enough, it gets better. We don't get saved and then just say, all right, have a good life. We don't get saved and then just get swept off to heaven. We get saved and we get put on mission. We get saved and we get to represent Christ as his ambassadors appealing to the world, be reconciled to God. I've heard Jared and Chad stand right here at this pulpit and say that perhaps the greatest mission field for this church is just a few feet that direction. It's right through that door. And that the children back there, that they need to hear these words, they need to experience Jesus' love, most of them in a transforming way for the first time. And our church has the opportunity to send 12 kids to camp week after next, to marinate in these truths all week. And odds are, most of those kids aren't saved. Odds are, most of the thousands of kids that are going to go to a student life camp this summer aren't saved. And so I'm asking you this morning to be part of that mission, to be part of the Bridges mission as we go to camp, and to be part of the mission, and I'm asking you to do that through prayer. Pray for the rec leaders, pray for the people working the breakfast line, pray for the pastors, pray for the actors that are going to get up and do all these crazy, silly skits. Pray for me, pray for Brent and Danny as we go. Pray that all of that would work together to make the gospel real in these kids' lives. Pray that the Holy Spirit moves in them. Pray that God softens their hearts. Pray that they are transformed. God, you are a good and mighty God. You are powerful. And we come before you with thankful hearts. Thankful for your word to us in, this, in these scriptures. Thank you for student life and their hard work as they prepared these lessons. Thankful that you've provided an opportunity for us to attend this camp. But mostly... Thankful for the reconciling work of Christ. We come before you with hopeful hearts, with pleading hearts, begging that you would move in the lives of these 12 boys. Begging that they would see you in a new light, that you would open their eyes to their sin and to your grace and your mercy. Amen.